Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about this question that we're going to pose here, and that is, are we really the enemy? Who is the enemy? Are we really the bad guys? I mean, there's this ongoing sort of war of ideas that occurs with with everything that you're dealing with in, in life, right? And the government in general, let's just say government actors, whether it's alphabet agencies or all of these various, you know, bureaucracies within our own very uh, government and these uh, sort of administrative organizations that are set up to to sort of, you know, deal with all these situations, they all tend to really paint people with a very broad brush and uh, sometimes in the worst colors and most of the times in the worst colors. So I think it's worth kind of breaking down some ideas that might make some of you sort of understand the way these people operate, the way they think, and maybe the strategic value they see in their in their in their war against you. Um, not to say it has any validity, but just something worth kind of looking at, maybe from a broader uh, general overview of you know why they try to paint the picture the way they do, and we try to come up with some sense here of why that is. Might be pretty interesting. So stick around, grab a coffee. We're going to get into this particular podcast. Before we get started, I would like to thank our friends at Ballistic Inc. for supporting our efforts here. Go and pick yourself up an awesome new t-shirt. That's one way you can support Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit directly. Awesome designs, all Patriot, American, printed, and packed, and shipped. Everything good to go. Check them out, Ballistic Inc. I'll put a link down in the description box below for you to check out. Go get yourself some snazzy gear, and you can support your favorite content creators uh, in the process. So, Matt, we sort of like started breaking this concept down a little bit and getting into some of the weeds a bit. So where are we kind of going with this? What's the general idea? So I know when we kind of discussed this when we were in the planning phase and, you know, guys, our show prep is minimal. We like to just get together. And I think that we have some of the best conversations without having to try to like elaborate and extrapolate too much um, because then it doesn't really give you anything to talk about when the mics are on. Yeah. You don't um, want to pre-plan. Yeah. Like, you, so you want it to be a natural conversation and kind of like pose some questions as we go. And and I think like you said, Eric, it, it provokes a very uh, good thought experiment. Um, so it allows the listener, you guys and myself and you to kind of go through this, this process of like, c2j like oh i didn't think about that and you'll see that sometimes on camera like you'll see like the lights come on you're like oh well i just realized that here in the middle of the podcast um but if we're going to digress into what the meat and potatoes is i know on the first um segment we were talking about um and we talked about this briefly was how the government um, you'll see a lot of them pre- like as far as preparedness weapons, like, Oh, the, the government can stockpile weapons or the government can stockpile food and preparations and gear. But if the general public does it, all of a sudden we get labeled with this, like, Oh, he's one of those guys or they're one of those people that like to, um, stockpile weapons or ammo or on the fringe and we're just trying to figure out how that came to be. How is it that um, if you're some type of government entity, your local sheriff's department of 
you know, six guys in Bofunk America can have uh, a repurposed 113 up armored with a battering ram on it with a town population of 600. And all of a sudden, the guy that has a few guns in the house, he's the crazy one. So it just, it's like this weird label of how that, how that came to be. It, it's like, it's like the government doesn't like competition. Like they That's don't want to feel like they, they yeah. want to, they want to just kind of, you know, hold on to and achieve that warlord status. Like they want to be the ones with a monopoly on violence, a monopoly on force, a monopoly on ideas, a monopoly on the status quo. And I think that that's what a lot of it comes down to. And, you know, remove your ego, if you will, from the situation, which we all interject our egos into the things we talk about. Remove your ego and remove your bravado from the situation and simply look at it from a basic standpoint of just logistical power, raw power, right? If you have the upper hand over the situation, you want to achieve that and keep that upper hand. So I'm not saying I agree but the way that they're they're thinking about it is, well, we have the nukes, we have the jets, we have the bombs, we have the force, we have the military, we have the, the police, and we have a monopoly on the maximum amount of force that can be put against a, a given populace, whether it be in warfare against our enemies or whether it be against our very own people. Now, we don't want to believe, right, ever, that our own government would ever lift a finger uh, to hurt American citizens, but of course... In the past, you know, there's been many, many situations that have proven that they are more than willing uh, to hurt hurt us and to hurt people. But we're not even getting into the semantics of that per se, really. Okay, we're not going to talk about what their motivation motivations are, what our motivations may be. We're simply just talking about the the hypocrisy of why it is that if if I want to be well prepared, I'm all all of a sudden I'm a you know, I'm a fringe person on the right wing, or I'm a, you know, conspiracy theorist, or I'm some form of extremist. But yet, if they have a hole in the side of a mountain with a series of bunkers with seeds and, and no telling what, and weapons, and, and, and barracks, and uh, nuclear biological chemical filtration systems, and underground nuclear power and, and be able to escape into a mountain and survive, you know, for 10 years without even seeing the, the, the light of day, if they do that, they're okay. And, and, and subsidize on our money, by the way, right? It's okay for them to do that. It's all right for them to have this disposition of holistic survival, preparation. But yet when you and I do it, we're all of a sudden, you know, shunned for it. It's wrong. It's terrible. And Again, like we've talked in the past about the survival mentality. We've talked in the past about, um, you know, maybe the, the, the mid to late 80s uh, sort of prepper movement or survivalist movement, if you will. And it had a lot of varying um, connotations involved with it, you know, based on who you ask about it, right? People within the movement itself were just like, hey, we're just trying to be self-sufficient. But I think Back then, it was really more of a, you know, hey, we think there's going to be a societal collapse. There's going to be, let's just say, a race war or some war against the government or something. That was always the general idea in the 80s and the 90s with the survivalist and prepper movement. And I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on that because we've already done podcasts where we've discussed these things uh, before. And I suggest you check them out. Um, it's great information. But it's always had this sort of negative connotation to it. You, you'll never hear a Fed or you'll never hear anyone within the government 
come out and go, oh, you know what? Those survivalist types, they're pretty cool people. You know, I think it's smart. They're prepared. They got solar. They got food. They got water. You know, they got they got ammo. They got guns. They know how to farm. They know how to take care of themselves. Maybe they understand some individual movement tactics, some squad communication. You know, they know how to run radios, communicate with each other, operate as a unit. You know, oh, that, that's cool. You know what? We do that. We're the government, right? We train on this. We have manuals for this. We have protocols for this. We have, you know, all of our, uh, you know, uh, standards and practices and standard operating procedures that we do related to all of these things, right? The government has small appliance uh, operating licenses. Like, you know, you're on a military post. You have to take a class to learn how to run a microwave. So everything is so bureaucratic and so regimented that... How could it possibly not be okay for me to engage at a personal level in the way that I want to be to, to make sure that I'm happy and safe and efficient when when they obviously, you know, that's their MO? And, and I don't understand that. You'll never hear a Fed or anyone in the government say, Oh, that's a good thing that you're that you're ready and capable. It's like it's oh the blanket statement, Matt, is always going to be it's like, oh, you're crazy for thinking that way. But all all the while. They're over there with armories full of guns, mm-hmm. warehouses full of ammo, you know, warehouses full of food, fuel, oil. I mean, you name it. Like, they're ready. But the minute you want to be ready, you're all of a sudden just painted as, as a bad person. Well, as uh, someone once said, the scariest thing that you can hear, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that it's very interesting that they do like to be the the BDs, the ones hanging, holding all the cars. They like to be able to step on you at any point in time uh, that they want. And the more and more you look at it, especially with in today's you know social media culture, we're able to disseminate information much faster, much quicker in real time. You start to see that kind of stuff, like you know. Mike from uh, Guns and Gear posted the the sheriff's office down the canal in the little Zodiac boat. He's like paddling the Zodiac boat. And I'm like, well, there's only two guys in the boat. And common sense would be like, if you're going to try to do a Zodiac infill, you might as well just go ahead and fast rope because they don't have RPGs. They probably have small arms. Might as well just fast rope from like Black Hawk and just get it done and not try to do a water infill with a a Zodiac in full kit. And, and, you know, what would happen if the police saw a normal person doing that? You know, like, okay, I'm just going to practice. I'm going to take my Zodiac and I'm going to like paddle down the creek in Florida. Dude, they would be all over you. Like, what are you doing? Why do you have this equipment? This is so when you start breaking it down, they can have it. We cannot, right? They don't want you to be self-sufficient. They want to be able to provide everything to you. They want the power. Or withhold it. Or withhold it. That's probably a more important distinction. They want to be able to say, we're not going to give these resources to these people because we don't give a crap if they die or not. And then They want to be able to choose. They want to be able to be the gatekeepers of <laughs> who who survives and who doesn't. They don't want you to be independent and capable of protecting yourself or being independent of their carefully manicured and carefully planned, you know, 
new world order. Yeah, order. They're, they're if gonna you will. I mean, and that's what it comes down to. Well, they're already trying to drive that wedge, and I and you know what? I think that maybe it just didn't work when they had that whole MVE. You know, where they were trying to take, they released a bulletin, the FBI released a bulletin about MVE. I think it's like militia violent extremists. And they were trying to um, assign the signs of MVEs, like the come and take it, you know, the, the Gonzalez flag, you know, don't tread on me. Like basically, like the Betsy, even the Betsy Ross flag. So they were taking all of these, you know, forms of, Americana, patriotism, things that made us who we are. Yeah, these are flags that represent America and freedom throughout the tenure of the country. They were flown with with pride. And they're assigning them to an acronym, MVE, and saying these are bad people. These people, they believe in freedom and they want they don't they don't toe the line, they don't conform to, you know, what we want. They have weapons, they're self-sufficient, and they're the enemy. They labeled MVEs as the enemy. And you had people put into that category that were surprised by that. I know there's a bunch of people that are in the social media platform in this sphere that were very surprised. Some of them are feds. that they like Their own friends and brothers put them in that category. So... It's just wild to see how fast your own people will turn on you because of the power dynamic. We they want power, they want to keep power, and they're willing to step on you to keep to to retain that power. And it's funny how we you know, we wound up with the Patriot Act mm-hmm. and the Patriot Act is anything but patriotic. Yes. And, you know, look, I'm I'm not gonna get into a ton of detail on the Patriot Act, but you know, it's like well, the justification for it was, well, we have to have the Patriot Act so that we can keep an eye on all these crazy terrorists. Because at the time, you know, oh, it's a war on terror and we got to go after all these people. But really, if you think about it, it was just sort of a straw man argument in, in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe at the time and in very, very specific and certain situations, yes, it might have been necessary to do a bit of snooping to figure out if some bozo is about to do something something bad and we need to stop him. But, of course, it can't ever just stop there. It always has to just go to the extremes of, of every level. And it's almost like you get the idea that they knew eventually these wars were going to wind down. And you see that, you know, we were in, in the war on terror for 20 freaking years, 20 plus years. And, you know, all of this money and all of this loss of life and all of these people that have been displaced and affected by it and all of this, you know, just hellscape that is that is war, you know, and you and you look at that and you think, all right, well, you know, now, now this is over. Does that mean the Patriot Act is going to go away? Oh no, no, we still have the Patriot Act. So see, it's 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 always about incrementalism, and incrementalism will never, ever, ever. I don't care what anybody says. You will never gain back through incrementalism what incrementalism took away. It's always easy to put a frog in a nice, comfy pot of water and then turn it up slow until he boils to death, and he doesn't realize until the heat is so extreme that he can't survive anymore. But you're never going to just quickly turn that heat back down. Once that heat is up, that's it. You're boiling. All of a sudden, you're a boiling frog in water. You're done. And incrementalism is is uh, really a, a, a huge issue for our country. I mean, in, in terms of the way that, that we view many things in our society, it is always just a chipping away. You know, if you took a perfectly shaped marble block 
and you smashed it with a hammer into a million pieces and said, all right, I'm really good at this. I'm going to put this thing back together in every little perfect way that I possibly can. And I don't care how good you are. There's always going to be a little bit like you're never going to get those pieces back together perfectly. You're ne- there's always going to be voids. There's always going to be cracks. There's always going to be imperfections. There's always going to be the piece that no matter how hard you looked, you couldn't find it. It got lost, right? That block will never be a solid block ever again. It will always be a memory of whatever it was that you will never put it back. And that's what incrementalism is. And I think that is that's the enemy. Incrementalism is the enemy. And that incrementalism in these modern terms has really kind of come in the form of government overreach, mm-hmm. right? Abusing administrative process, like this whole Chevron deference thing, like, you know, when ATF gets into this rulemaking. Well, you know, we're always taught, right? Like, you know, go back to just, you know, uh, Civics 101 and Civics class, right? Back when back when in school they actually taught real civics, you know, social studies. Now, now yep. it's social studies, but... I'm talking civics, like American government. You know, how a bill has to get passed. And you're always taught, well, that's why we have checks and balances. We have Congress, right? You know? And when you look at the uh, clear and blatant abuse that the administrative state is using, I mean, sure, is it some legal loophole that they're using to come up with these ideas? Yeah, it might be legal, technically. It might be somehow construed as being, um, you know, a a legitimate method of of securing uh, their goals. But after a while, you kind of look back, and as that chipping away occurs, as that that incrementalism occurs, it's like you realize that once those floodgates are open and they have the ability to just go, well, this is illegal because we say it is, and you know what? It doesn't matter what that this didn't go through Congress and we actually change a law, but what matters is we are going to arrest you for this. So it's just like, that abuse of administrative process and that abuse of of really them abusing what their actual powers and, and responsibilities are. I hate to say the term powers because you don't view the government as powerful. People have been raised and conditioned, especially our generation, to view the government as servants, to view the government as someone who is culpable and held accountable to you, the citizen, right? That, that the government is ran for the people, by the people, and accountable to the people. That's what you're told. And you, you always, you live that lie. You believe that lie. You constantly tell yourself, well, that's how, that's just how things are. There's no way that they would ever abuse their power. There's no way that they would ever, you know, go, you know what? We don't care what that old document says. We're just going to do whatever the heck we want. We don't care what the checks and balances are, what the processes are for getting things done. We're going to use the pen and we're just going to bypass that. That's the danger. And that's, that is just a, a, a little tiny form of that incrementalism. Uh, that I think that is really clear and present danger in our society today. That's absolutely correct. And I would say, uh, you know, Rand Paul, I like the guy. I think he has a lot of good, uh, his mentality is good. He got a lot of credit for pushing back on uh, Fauci with the whole, like, uh, when they were, like, doing the, he's a, he's a doctor, so he was able to actually articulate and ask questions. Um, and he got a lot of press out of that. I think he did a great job. I but think Rand is a pretty well-rounded guy. He is, and he, however, he and this is where this is where I really like him is in 2001 when they first enacted the or when they first brought the Patriot Act to become into existence was obviously uh, we experienced um, you know an act of terror, the Twin Towers planes hitting, and the 
Alphabet Agency said, you know what? We need a way that's not bureaucratic, that gives us the leeway and the latitude to just listen, search, and get information by me- any means necessary. Officially. Officially. I mean, how do we know that yep. they weren't just doing it the whole time anyway? Well, this gave them, this gave them the, the legal, the, the legal way, latitude yeah. and, and leeway to do so. But Rand Paul, even back in 2001, he's like, hey, this is a bad idea because you never let, as they say, you never let a crisis go to waste. As soon as that happened, this bill, this bill was proposed. He understood and along with a lot of other Americans understood that this gives them a foot in the door. You put the foot in the door, you're coming in. This is, it was up for renewal in 2015. So bill was passed in 2001. It was sunset and it was due to be renewed in 2015. He voted no in 2001, one of the few, and he also voted no on the renewal. So he, his voting record as far as privacy and security is, is good. And I thought he, I think he brings a lot of sense to the conversation about you would look at it and say and it, and it's very similar to how they try to do the omnibus bills with military spending they say well don't you want the military to have this money to continue to be able to protect america yes and then they throw in all this pork about you know gene studies in india and mm-hmm. you know you know, gender studies in this country and these weird studies for yeah. like the, the monarch butterfly in Belize. Yeah, how do you know they don't just have a dude over there with a briefcase? Yeah. They're just, just they're takes just the giving money, away money. And, they're, and they're laundering that money. Right. Like they, but they don't a say that. A lot of that. that has to be money laundering. But it has they, to be. They don't say that. They just say, you don't want the military to have money. They're not even talking about all the other pork that's in that bill, 4,000 pages, over 4,000 pages is in the most recent omnibus bill. But if we're getting back to the Patriot Act, same thing. He understood this is a bad idea. You don't want to give the government this ability. What happens in 2000, what, 18 or 19 was Snowden that came out. He basically pulled the curtains down and said, everything that you guys thought is true. <laughs> and then, bam. There's a double-edged sword with Snowden. And it's a, it's a very delicate line to, to, to dance on. It, dare I say, a balancing act on a very thin line. You know, on one end, Snowden was trusted with a lot of secrets and given access to a lot of secrets that he was sworn to, sworn to never talk about on one end. On the other end, you know, we're all human beings. We have a conscience, and there were a lot of lot of lot of information that he had access to and released information on that that maybe he he shouldn't have maybe released that information in the way that he did. He could have still got the point across without releasing some of the things he did. But overall, I will say that I think that Edward Snowden is. You know, look, someone might question his honor because, oh, well, you couldn't keep a secret or you couldn't do this or you couldn't do that. But I think there are certain things in life that question your honor, right? You know, yes, your ability to keep a secret, that's one of the most important tenets of manhood that there possibly could ever be. If I tell you 
one of my deepest, darkest secrets, and you go around and spread that secret, you're excommunicated. Like that, that's, you're breaking the, the worst form of man code. But what if sharing the secret does so much more positive for the world than just the one negative of, well, I said I was going to do something and I swore on my mother's grave that I, that I would do this. But when I got under the rabbit hole and found out just how bad it was, my conscience got the better of me and the decision to share the information outweighed the importance of keeping a secret. And I guess that's really what we all, you know, any of us have a security clearance. Yeah. Those are the things that, that go through your mind. And, and, and that's, you know, I, so I can respect and be pissed at Snowden all in the same sentence. What Snowden did was necessary, I believe. But it was ultimately his decision to decide whether or not he was going to break his security clearance and share some of the information that he did. Well, look at the way that, you know, we're the first thing and they ingrained this into you, even with your initial training, is that because you have to understand the power dynamic in the military and he was DOD. Yes, he was a civilian, but he was still DOD. There was still a hierarchy of power there. Probably worse. Yes. And they they teach you when you first come in, you do not have to follow an unlawful order. You do not have to. Yes, there is the code of brotherhood, but there's unlawful orders that you don't have to follow. He's if in your a, commanding officer is ordering you to murder civilians, you don't have to carry out that order. Correct. Correct. And you're actually obligated to bring that to the attention of other people. Like that's So is that your Snowden moment in that situation? Yeah. And the I mean, way there's that, a lot I mean, look, I know a lot of Vietnam vets, right? And a lot of those guys told me stories about things that happened in the bush when leadership ain't doing what the, what they want them to do and yeah. and it's like a lot of situations what we call fratricide, yeah. like Friendly, we're talking like it's one thing to have friendly fire and oops, I hit my own guy. I didn't mean to. We're talking, hey, it's the middle of a gunfight and you're like, boom, boom, boom. There's the enemy and you go right in the back of your PL's yeah. head. They would drop. And that happened. Look, yeah. and damn, it happened. They would throw grenades in the hooch. Like you'd be laying mm-hmm. down and just drop a grenade in there. Boom, done. You have to think, man, there's some really bad leaders out there and you don't know the situation. He had, a, he was privy to a, a obviously very, very important information. But I want to, I just want to say the way that he controlled the data dump was probably the most responsible way to do it that he had available. He didn't just dump it out onto the dark web with other people's information, you know, personal information of everybody. He, he dumped it through one reporter. That reporter filtered through, found the information that was pertinent and reported on that. That way, you didn't have people's private information out there, mm-hmm. stuff that was redacted. Yes, there's always going to be things that you know you still have to uphold for your security clearance, but the greater good was bringing it to the attention of the American public. Yes, they're listening to your phone calls. Yes, this is happening. There, there, there are government programs setting up for this. Yeah, they're so, creating entire profiles based on everything you say, facial search, recognition. Yes, you look, you know, yeah, your facial profiles. And you know, what's, you know, Snowden is a brilliant guy. I mean, like I I read a lot of his sub stacks and, you know, he does put out, you know, he releases some stuff from time to time and I do follow Mm -hmm. Snowden on Twitter and you look, Edward Snowden's a smart guy. He's got a lot of great ideas and, um, 
you know, it's just a shame that the world we live in, when you look at Julian Assange, you look at Snowden, I mean, these are names that are very um, controversial to a lot of people. They're very incendiary to some. Uh, you've got your dyed, diehard redcoats that, you know, oh, big brother government can do no wrong, you know. And to be fair, because I try to be fair, I try to play devil's advocate. I mean, all right, think about it. You're third generation fed. Your family's lived in Virginia for as long as you can remember. Your grandfather was federal police or whatever, and your dad did this. And it's like, you know what? That's all you know is that for your, for, you know, y'all have always been part of the feds. And it's like, in your mind, the feds can do no wrong. Because when someone says, well, the federal government did this wrong or did that wrong, or they're at fault in this way, they take it personally and they go, well, my dad was a good guy. My grandpa was a good guy. I mean, you have people that are like third, fourth generation feds, and that's just, that's what their family does. They serve in the federal government. And it becomes like this, you know, um, they're, they're oligarchs in a way, like they're gatekeepers to freedom and they're gatekeepers to ideas. And, you know, you get it, right? Like you've worn the uniform before and you know how it feels like when you're in a military unit, everyone's wearing the same uniform and you look to your left and you look to the right and the enemy uh, performs some transgression against someone wearing your uniform. What are you going to go? You're going to protect your people. So I don't blame them for having the mindset of, well, we, we protect our own. But it does get to a point, though, where it's like the transgressions and the things that they've blatantly been guilty of over these years cannot be ignored. You know, you can't continue to ignore those things. I think it's just yeah. in the in in the halls of human decency to expect that, you know, we'll give you a, a mulligan here and there if you make a mistake. But if you keep repeating the same mistakes over and over or if you keep repeating the same transgressions or lies or telling the same lies over and over again – or if you're not being forthcoming about information, being dishonest about information, or trying to hide information, after a while, like you will you will not continue to win in the court of public opinion. You just won't. Like the court of public opinion will always hold court and will always find you wanting, right? And the thing is, you can lie and you can cheat and you can manipulate a system only so much before you know the will of people will just manifest and, and, and cause things to happen. And, and like, there's just no escape from that. You've ever heard the term, like I, I know <laughs> I, I'm beating a dead horse here, but I know you've heard this before where you hear, especially in the fifties and sixties and like the cold war era, this was a really, really important thing that, that the government would always say. They'd be like, well, what are you a commie? Or they'd say, well, if you're not, if you're not, if you don't have anything to hide, what are you worried about? You hear them say that all the time, yeah. and, and especially law enforcement. They'll say, "Well, what are you so worried about? Why are you being so scrutinizing of what we do? What are you, some commie? Oh, well, what, what are you? Uh, you have something to hide, huh? And they're all accusatory, you know, and they're and they're and they're they're passive aggressive, and it's like that's a very passive aggressive thing. Oh, well, what do you have something to hide, right? And that's the issue. But have they ever looked at themselves in the mirror and thought, well, what if I apply that to, to myself? You know, yeah. it, it's easy to tell someone, well, you know, you're holding all the cards and you say, well, what, what's wrong? What, what do you have to hide? Have you ever thought about turning the tables on yourself and asking yourself, why are you so, you know, acting the way you do? What do you have something to hide? Have has it have has any fed or any people in the government or anybody in these alphabet agencies you know, your CIA, FBI, ATF, whatever, right? And your job is to, you know, yeah, you're going to have access to some information that may not be common knowledge, of course. You're going to have a security clearance, you know, all this. But have you ever really just looked in the mirror and said, 
What if we're the bad guys? What If we continuously say this about the people around us, well, what do you have to hide? What are you worried about? If you don't have anything to hide, what do you, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. That's right. But have you ever looked in the mirror and said, can you really say with all definitive truth that your honor is completely uh, undisparaged and, 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 and untested? And I just don't think the answer is yes. It's, I don't believe it. And, and I don't think anyone does. It's not. And what I will say is that, you know, we've all been following Project Veritas for a while. I think they do great in investigative journalism, probably some of the best investigative journalism um, to date uh, in the modern time with the, as far as like exposing government and whistleblowers. And I think the way they go about it is very, very smart. They incentivize the whistleblowers monetarily because they understand that the reason you don't you don't become a whistleblower because you're going to lose your job. And some of these, you know, whistleblowers, they will have been in their field for 15 years. They might be, you know, five years away from retirement, government retirement. So they're getting a check every month. They worked so hard for this moment. But on the inside, deep down in the core, they don't agree with what's going on. And you see that a lot right now with FBI, um, ATF, but they're not willing to blow the whistle because they don't, they have bills. They have a mortgage. They have kids that need to go to college. They have, um, you know, daily expenditures. So what does Project Veritas do? Oh, they set up a GoFundMe. And they crowdsource the whistleblowing. They say, you know what? Come forth and the people will take care of you. The people will make sure that you blowing the whistle will be in good faith. And these guys are bringing home quarter million dollars, half a million dollars. That's enough to retire on after you've worked for 15 years and you have some in the savings. You'd you couple that with your half million, quarter million dollar whistleblower payout. And that just happened in, uh, I think maybe a week ago. Um, they had an FBI uh, agent, special agent come forward and just said, Hey, you know, I can't, I can't take it anymore. These are the transgressions that are happening. The FBI is not what it used to be. We're going after our own people. We're, and it, it was just this whole, program of what can we do to divide the country and make sure that we still have a job so it turns into like this this self-cannibalizing culture of we have special agents we're going to go after other americans and we're going to use the patriot act we're going to listen read and we're going to find out what's going on and then we're going to move on them and then we're going to create other things to do and he did this special agent had enough and I think it's a good way to go about it because that's the only way that you're ever going to entice whistleblowers to come because there's nothing waiting for a whistleblower when they come out. They blow the whistle, career's over, no one will hire you. And they probably have to spend the rest of their life worrying about the assassin jumping out of the bushes and whacking them. Correct. So at least- That's a scary existence. At least this way- But your conscience is clear. It is clear. And I, and I really hope that more people come forward- um, and take that leap of faith and, yeah. and do it for the American people. It's, it's pretty random. I mean, what, what gets me is when you look at a, a citizen, 
that is perfectly willing and able to subsidize their own safety. You would think that that's something that the government would support, right? Like a, a citizen who's self-sufficient is not a citizen that requires any help or, or additional resources from you and maybe even can provide some additional resources to, you know, the world around them in a bad situation. I'm kind of just getting back to the, like that preparedness thing, but it's just wild to me how, you know, it seems that it, it's literally an us versus them mentality. And it just didn't always used to, used to be that way. Like I remember in the nineties, you know, like the Clinton years, I mean, look, Bill Clinton, sure, you know, he's a polarizing figure to many, and he did a lot of crazy things. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm a Bill Clinton fan, but he did balance the budget. This is true. Yeah, For the he, first time Yeah, in a I was going to say, he was like time, the first one to do it in a while. He balanced the budget. So, you know, you can say what you want. Bill Clinton balanced the budget. You know, look, the Clinton years were a little, little weird, but, but overall, like, we survived, and we balanced the budget, and, you know, Democrat. Yeah. So I'm not saying that, that that this polarizing situation where it's it's us versus them and Democrat versus Republican. That's what they I, want, I just though. don't think that it, it's that cut and dry anymore. I, I think that what's happening now is basically you've got all these statists, right? These statists that are getting together and running for office and they're planning all this out. And you've got all these billionaires pumping all these millions and millions of dollars into these packs and they have unlimited funds to run and campaign whatever candidate they absolutely want to do in terms of the political situation they're in, right? Mm -hmm. And what the issue kind of becomes is, well, okay, someone runs as a Republican, someone runs as a Democrat, but really those candidates are so carefully chosen and and and, and groomed, if you will, that mm -hmm. it's like it's really a uniparty. And I know that that, that word keeps getting thrown around, but it's, it's absolutely true. Like I think that it is in the government's best interest that when business is going the way they want it to be, whether they're in the business of division, whether they're in the business of divide and conquer, whether in the, the business of money laundering and black projects and slush funds and manipulating the stock market or manipulating global food supplies or global supply chains, whatever the heck they're into. If business is good and they're happy with the way things are going, they don't want anything to change. And they're, they want the political gears to either come to a stalemate or to change, to have the, the visibility of changing, but the reality is that nothing's changing. Well, and I think that, that they, it is completely within their best interest when things are going the way they want it to, to keep things absolutely stalemate as possible, right? Like, if, if you're in a ship battle, mm -hmm. okay, you're on the high seas, and you're, you're fighting, and you're pirates, right? And you're fighting each other with cannons, and you start blowing up every ship in the water, right? And you're winning. Like, you're maneuvering. You're doing well. Like, you want the conditions that created that battle to stay the way they are so that you can continue being victorious. Your crew's running well. Guns are running right. You're hitting what you're aiming at. You're not taking casualties. You're winning, right? Everyone wants to win. It doesn't matter. I'm not saying I support these people. I'm not saying I agree with these people. But to understand where they're coming from and to understand their mentality, you have to look at the big picture of the way that these people operate and what they're trying to accomplish. Like, it's really all about the profit margin. It's all about, hey, you know, if things are going the way they want it, you better believe that come election time, they're going to make sure that it's a revolving door of exactly the people that they choose to put in there. Yeah. Well, I want to that are going to do exactly what they tell them to. 
Well, here's the hypocrisy in all of that. When you mentioned, you know, the uh, the different PACs and, you know, donating money to different political parties, there's, um, you know, you guys might have heard about FTX and, you know, Sam Brinkman Fr- Freed or Fried or whatever it is, donating, you know, $100 million or more to the Democratic Party. I think it was, a, it was much more than that. That money went to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party sent it out to their candidates for the election. Um, and a lot of people lost their money on that. I mean, a lot of Americans lost their nest egg. They had all of their savings. They, they bought with FTX. If you guys aren't familiar with FTX, it's a crypto exchange. Um, but a lot of people lost their ass. They lost all their money. Who got the money? Democratic Party got their money. Don't you think it would be beneficial for them to give the money back to the courts to disseminate that that money back to the people, the Americans that lost their money? No, absolutely not. They take that money, put it in the packs, they spend the money. So for example, here in Georgia, Herschel Walker was running for senator, raised $57 million. That's actually pretty impressive. Warnock beat him two to one, raised $157 million with the majority of that money coming from Democratic PACs. So the people, the American people that had their money in crypto lost their money, got sent to the Democratic Party, got sent to Democratic candidates. So the American people paid for the the campaigns. Look, I'm I'm not going to sit here and give the exact details of who I had this conversation with. But I just want to paraphrase a recent conversation that I had um, with some members of the government. All right. And I'm not going to say who. <laughs> These are the best li- kinds of conversations. Uh, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> I'm not going to say who or from what agency or whether it was the State Department or the Pentagon. But let, let's just say I talked to a friend and I'm like, what's the what's the end goal? What's What's the real goal here? What are they trying to accomplish in the big scheme of things? What are they trying to accomplish? What what are they whose side are they really on? And you know, and this person, if they're watching, they know who they are, but I guarantee you if they're watching and they and they know what conversation I'm referring to, um, they're definitely not gonna say anything. But it's just like at what point? You know, do do you realize that this whole thing's rigged? It's a pretty scary prospect. What's the end goal? Who are the end victors? What's the what is the the end? What is what what is the end game? And even some people in the State Department that I know can't answer that question. How are we still on a two party system? After 200 there is years. no two party system. I mean, that's just it. Like you're, we're living a lie if we're if we're pretending and saying that you know the voting process is is like somehow oh democracy and all this stuff. Like this, this is all just they're throwing around all these terms, but I think in the big scheme of things, there's some serious screwy crap going on. No, oh, for sure. And they they don't care that you know. Like, in the 70s and 80s, at least they tried to to hide it, you know, and not really, you know, kind of not make it as apparent. Like, you know, 
politicians have their little backroom deals and they mm-hmm. have the little handshake deals and they have little sweetheart deals and they make things happen. They make a little money, you know, maybe not a, a ton of money, but you know, they definitely made some money on some back, back end deals, some insider trading. And most people just kind of turn a blind eye to it. It's like, Hey, that's politics, whatever. But like the level of corruption, the way it's happening now, it, it's like, and they're so blatantly out front about it and they don't care that, you know, what, what that, that tells me just from, from a behavioral standpoint of human behavior is that they don't think that they're going to be held accountable or culpable for their actions. And there's a danger in that, right? When they're just going to put things out there and they don't care that you know. They don't care that they got caught. They, the FBI doesn't care that they, that they got caught colluding with Twitter to you know, infringe on people's rights and to you know, censor them and ban them and shadow ban them and algorithmically destroy them. And that, that, that when the Twitter files came out, but Twitter was paid money by the FBI to cover like legal fees in accommodating with the FBI's requests. Well, if the FBI made the request to Twitter to, hey, do this, well, yeah, Twitter's a private company. They can do what they want. That argument's always made. Okay, yeah, Facebook, private company. Facebook banned me, right? 820,000 followers on Facebook and I got banned, right? And they claim, oh, well, you posted COVID and misinformation. They can say what they want. But at the end of the day, when all this stuff comes out in discovery, when we sue their asses, okay, and then they wind up doing some digging and find some emails from the White House or the emails from Facebook or FBI or whoever, and it's like, hey, I'm John Q from blah, 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 Men in Black, and this guy's a fly in the ointment. He's saying a bunch of crap about David Chipman. He, he's hurting our bottom line. We're getting a bunch of phone calls about this. We just want to shut this dude up. Like, can you accommodate with our request and shut this guy up because he's a fly in the ointment? Well, if they did that, it doesn't matter if Facebook adhered to their request and did it or didn't. Well, they did it, obviously, because I'm, I'm banned. But they are culpable for infringing on my rights. Facebook doesn't have to uh, abide by the First Amendment. They don't have to love the Constitution. They don't have to care about your rights. They can discriminate against you for any damn reason they want because they're a private company. But the government, on the other hand, a very different story. So when you see all these things coming out and starting to come to light, like this Twitter file drops that Elon's doing, mm-hmm. That's a game changer, and I think that it caught them with their pants down in a way that they never would have expected. I mean, think about how militant the media was about trying to, you know, convince everyone that this Musk takeover of Twitter was not going to happen. That there was all these legal things in place that would, oh, he can't do that. Oh, this is a hostile takeover. This is a threat on democracy. I mean, look at that. All of these things that they were saying, oh, Elon's going to do this, do that. But then what's the first thing that Elon does? He drops all of this internal information to come clean and save face for the company. But in the process, blow the lid wide open on these people and you get a shot right up their skirt, well lit, plenty clean. You see exactly what is going on. So I don't think they expected that to happen. It's the last thing that they expected to ever occur. And also, if you look at when Zuck was on Rogan, Rogan grilled him pretty good about you know what happened with that whole scenario. And he was very honest. He said the FBI gave them a heads up, told them, basically gave them all the information, and they made the decision to censor specific posts. However, you don't see any media picking that up, saying, you know, like pointing, see, see, they're they're censoring, they're actively censoring. For some reason he's he literally said the quiet part out loud and nobody cared 
So right. I, I, when like guys would like you and me, we see it. We just we we look at it, we go, we knew it, we knew it. We, right. But everybody else is just like, oh yeah, that's just oh, you, just you, another you day. You better believe I'm gonna be made whole. Yeah. It's just another day. It's another dollar. Oh yeah. I'm just like it's it's amazing. I mean, so, there's some people holding them accountable though. I mean, like we're gonna sue them, and then James Wood is suing them. He got banned on Twitter. I don't I I don't know if he's suing. Twitter, but I mean, there, there's lots of people like that. They brought mm-hmm. Mike Lindell back. They brought Trump back. Um, and, and look, Elon was fair. He was like sort of democratic, democratic, if you will, in the process. Like he did the post and said, Hey, mm-hmm. should we unban Donald Trump? And, uh, you know, a higher percentage than 50 of the respondents, uh, said that you should unban him. And he did. Yeah. And it's not like a higher percentage of like a thousand. It was like millions. It was like, right. I, I think it was, it was like, like 57% of respondents wanted him back. Yeah. And it was a total of like 4 million. Yes. And it was like, you yeah. know, it was in the millions of people that actually participated. And I think that he said on the next, on the next vote, it's only going to be with blue checks and to get the blue check you have to pay i'm not opposed to that because that means there's no bots so bots aren't going to pay for the blue check blue checks are going to count for voting perfectly fine with me i've been a uh, twitter blue user for about a half a year now and i don't have a freaking check mark you didn't pay the eight dollars yeah i did you paid the eight dollars I mean, I think so. No, they just started. They just that. they just started the eight dollar thing. Like when Elon, I don't even think they've actually launched it yet. But he I said, need to look into that. yeah, he said they're going to charge eight dollars for the verified thing, and then that way they know you're not yeah. a bot because you're not going to have ten thousand. And I think that's smart. I mean, I think anyone who sees value in a platform like Twitter, like if you like using Twitter, what's eight bucks mm-hmm. to? I mean, well, the so, guy spent forty four billion dollars buying the platform. I mean, I think. We can we can afford eight yeah. bucks to throw in the hat for Elon. I mean, well, I think that's just being fair. To to go back on what you said about you know the whole voting process about guys like you, they don't need guys like you to vote. Whether it's Democrats or Republicans, they're importing new voters. So when you look at you know just the border and what's coming across the border, you know I just have the numbers here pulled up from the CBP. Month of September 2022, cbp.gov, 227,000 people came across the border. And if you look at the initiatives they're looking to do in you know states like California, um, the West Coast mainly, and even in New York, they're wanting to implement voting without any ID. So if you take the thought of being able to vote both locally and federally, and saying we just had a quarter of a million people in one month cross the border, and that's just one month. That's that's up two hundred and forty five percent from twenty twenty one. On a monthly basis, you're around eighty to a hundred thousand people crossing the border every month. That's a lot of voters, and then you look at where they're sending them. They're putting them on midnight flights. Sending them out to all these different places. We've had them here in Atlanta. They've landed here in Atlanta. I don't know what they're, how they're dealing with it. I know in New York, they, they had a state of emergency with illegal aliens saying, Hey, our infrastructure can't handle it. Our, all of our shelters are full. Um, same thing in Washington, DC. I thought it was brilliant what, um, DeSantis was doing when he sent him. Was it DeSantis or Texas or was it, uh, it was Texas. I think it was both. They sent them to Martha's Vineyard. They sent them to New York. They sent them to Washington, D.C. Because those are typically, 
they don't experience the same thing that the southern states do, Florida, Georgia, um, South Carolina, Texas, Arizona. We experience it at a much higher level. It gave them a taste of that. And but they got it got reported on, and then you don't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's gone. I will say that there is an initiative for them to provide voting rights to non-U.S. citizens and import a new voting base because they're already again California leading the charge. Let's give um, money to homeless people. You're on a stipend. They, mm-hmm. Homeless people in California make more money than veterans like that are wounded. They're getting – it just boggles my mind. Um, and then you have Newsom that might be running. He's, they, they're saying he might make a presidential run. And I'm like, so you're basically wanting to take the same thing that's going on in California and apply it countrywide. So there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to consider. Uh, but just keep in the back of your mind that – when you have that, when you have that much of a displacement of people coming into a country at one time, it can really throw off the voting parameters for what what they're wanting. Good points. Uh, there is another fly in the ointment that I'd like to kind of discuss. We have a few more minutes left yes. on this podcast. Um, the other fly in the ointment is the battle for ideas and the battle for information and the control of that information. And I think that's something that our government and members within social media and the mainstream media have really fought hard to control uh, the battlefield that is the war of ideas. And I think that strategically, if we just remove our egos and remove our own personal views from the situation, their strategy, uh, for what for what it's worth, was a, a pretty good strategy. I don't agree with the end result. I don't agree with their motivations, and I don't agree with whatever... I mean, their end, their end goal seems to be pretty nefarious, um, but the strategy seemed to make sense. Like, well, we'll just you know, censor the people that have a differing opinion than us. And I think that that's the big fly in the ointment for these people is that social media um, is a powerful thing. The control, or let's just say the sharing of information amongst people uh, who are followed, like, I mean, you look at Twitter, like I've got 98,000 followers on Twitter. That's 98,000 people that care enough about what I have to say to follow, to follow me. And like, so, and then think about all of their followers and then all their followers and like those little wormholes of ideas that you go down, like, you know, something hits a good run and like a tweet gets shared by a bunch of great people. Like I noticed, you know, recently I had Adam Baldwin sharing some of my tweets. Um, we had the Hodge twins, that uh, retweeted something I said the other day. So it's like, it's awesome when like-minded people share information, especially when that information is so drastically different than whatever the the completely, uh, let's just say carefully manicured narrative is that you're being pushed on by the mainstream media and Mm -hmm. by these, you know, political pundits who are obviously biased uh, towards the opposite side of the political spectrum. And, and these, these platforms who have shown favoritism to these people. These platforms have shown favoritism to the leftists, right? And many of them have. And some of them are much worse, uh, tra- you know, have much worse transgressions than others, right? Uh, but Twitter was definitely caught up in that. So it's interesting to see that this this sort of battlefield of the mind, if you will, as simple and innocent as social media is. I mean, you think about the MySpace days. Oh, boy. You know, like an old fun. school MySpace page. And yep. it was just so innocent. Like, hey... You know, 
I make my little custom page. Hey, we all learned a little bit about HTML and, yes, and, and doing awesome. some, some page editing. I mean, like, so that was kind of cool. It was, a, it was an experience in creating a digital personification of you. Mm-hmm. And that's what social media is. You are a digital interface of the real person that is present on, on the web with all of your likes, wants, hates, fears, anything you choose to share. And it's just interesting to see that what that became is a thought experiment, that my Twitter page is essentially a digital version of me, a, a, a machine personified version of me, a, a, a direct link into my mind and my thoughts and the things that I think. I mean, it is kind of a thirst trap in a lot of ways. You get on Twitter and you're just thinking of something and you want to share it with people. People get that dopamine rush, mm-hmm. right? They get those, you know, it happens. Like when, when people really engage with a post, there is a psychological factor of pleasure that you get from people agreeing with what you have to say. And we get, you know, locked into these echo chambers where, well, we want to post the things that people agree with. So we get good positive comments. We don't want to, you know, question anything or cause waves because then we get a bunch of negativity and nobody wants negativity in their life. So the Achilles heel that I guess I'm trying to discuss is that social media has provided uh, both the solution to this issue uh, and the ultimate problem that these governments have to overcome. It's like they desperately want to control the flow of ideas, the narratives, right? They want to, you know, put down any person that says anything that goes against what what they have to say. And I think that they're finding a tremendous amount of difficulty in doing that a lot more than they expected. I think they 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 are realizing that the water flow of ideas is not so easily held back. Dude, you brought back memories of MySpace, man. There's so you learn so much from just that one. And I I will say that Tom, the owner of MySpace, he did it right, man. Sold the company and just traveled the world. He yeah. didn't try to get caught up in social justice. He wasn't trying to put that money. Well, he actually does use his money for good charitable work. He wasn't trying to form the next super company. And he was just like, listen, man, I got mine. Mm-hmm. I'm out. Yeah. Travels the world doing photography. But good for it, him. it's like things were so much simpler. Because, I mean, like, think about MySpace. Think about your page. You got to customize it. You got to do your own, like everybody's page. Like it actually reflected your personality. You had the yeah. background music. You go, you had whatever music you want. You had your own background. The pictures, they were like my car and going out and partying. Like that was it. That, that was yeah. what, that's what the pictures were. I yeah. mean, there was my, no like. My, uh, my old MySpace page was like guitars. Yeah, man. Pretty much music and barbecue. <laughs> there was no clout. There was no clout pictures. It wasn't like we're doing it for clout. It was like, "Hey man, this is my this is my car. It's a beater. This is my part. I was out at partying at the club. Like mm-hmm. that was it." And then you just like have chats yeah. with friends. Here's my ugly grilled cheese I made. Yeah, man. It's just basic. Yeah. Things were much more simpler. But you then. also learn how to code. Like it was like you learn yeah. like, "Oh, HTML, copy yep. and paste if you need to make changes." So simple. Yeah, man. you learned a little code. And um, and I think that it was also for a lot of people, you know, their first time exposure um, to tech stuff. Like, like social instant media. Messa- and, yeah, yeah, instant messaging and, and like those those chat windows and chat rooms. Like yes. that was a really golden era, era, era for social media was like the old chat rooms. And you had those punter things where you could kick people out of yeah, the chat rooms. Like, it's just little nerdy stuff like that that like – Unless you were alive and experienced it, 
especially in your teenage years and like and you lived through that as as a pivotal part of your of your teenage upbringing especially growing up with technology in that way it was just it was an interesting time to be alive it, it really, really was yeah it was it was fun to see the myspace and facebook come up together like yeah. facebook came out and it was like competing against it mm-hmm. and it was like the the cool kids had myspace at the time and all of yeah. like the the geeky college kids had facebook and then Tom got smart, sold the company, and retired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, well, maybe maybe the entire lesson in this whole uh, podcast is that uh, sometimes you just got to know when to walk away. Yeah, Look, man. Hey, Tom, <laughs> if you're out there, have a great life, buddy. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. <laughs> I hope you I hope you're I hope you're happy, and I uh, hope you're taking some great photos, man. I never deleted you off my friends list, man. You're always my number one friend. You always stayed in my friends list, Tom. <laughs> That's right. Good stuff. <laughs> Well, hopefully this gives us some food for thought. I know we posed a lot of questions. We placed a lot of uncertainties in your mind. Like maybe we challenge your perspective. Maybe we challenge our own perspective in the process. And I think good conversation and good thought should do that. Okay? Don't be so quick to just parrot the narrative. Don't be so quick to just... Put an idea out that you know someone will agree with just for the sake of be, of knowing that, oh, well, they agree with me. And to get that rush right, always question. Always question what you see before you because there may be a better path. And I guess that's all we're really trying to say here. There's nuance in everything. There's nuance in everything. There's decisions that you're going to have to make that are going to require you to do some thinking. And life is not black and white. Black, it's not cut and dry, you know. Life is full of nuance and perspective and moderation. And those are the things that we have to consider. And when we consider, okay, are we the enemy? That answer most certainly is no. Not only are we not the enemy, I would say that we are absolutely the only thing standing between freedom and tyranny. Very well said. And it just, it is what it is. There's no way around it. At this point, the writing's on the wall. The cat is out of the bag. That ship has sailed. That train is left, right? That wheel is rolling down the hill. There ain't no bringing it back. And I think that especially people that are in our age group and our generation, I believe that some of us may have lived with blinders on for a long time, Matt. And I feel like we're seeing reality in a much more awake way than what we used to. I think that's a good thing. It certainly is. It is. Look, thank y'all so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to go over to Ballistic Inc. and pick up a new shirt. He's got some awesome designs on there, so check out Matt's shirts. And that is one way you can support this podcast directly. Uh, we got some some spicy ones. All right. So I know you love spicy shirts. Get a spicy shirt and piss someone off. Because sometimes <laughs> it's how you start a conversation. That's right. And that's what this this podcast is all about is starting a conversation. Hope y'all have a great week, and we have many more on the way, I promise. Matt and I get pretty busy. Sometimes we can't always release a new podcast every week, but we do try our best. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been a great talk, and I hope you enjoyed it. And we will talk to you all soon. See you next week. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. 
You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.